All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank each of you again for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. And for the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are... American Bonanza, Brazil Resources, Helio Resources, Merrick's Gold, Metanor Resources, Paramount Gold and Silver, Marathon Gold, Meadow Bay Gold, and Rye Patch Gold. Well, before we went to break, we were talking to Dr. Berry about his discovery investment model, and we went through some of the variables. We talked about them in general. Uh, I, I, I am quite excited about this model. I hope to use it myself. Uh, as uh, as we go forward, and I sort of have the feeling that it's not necessarily going to mean that I can uh, leave work early. It's probably going to mean that uh, the time I put in will be more productive, and I should have a higher probability of making more money. Is that? A, do you think that's an accurate way of describing it, Doctor Barry? I, I do, Jay. And you know, um, the, the the database we're developing is is really an important aspect. The software is all written now at least the first uh, um, go-round of it. But, you know, if you say, well, I want to see Company X, um, I, I, don't, I don't know Rye Patch, I want to see Rye, you're going to be able to pull that up and see what the crowd score is. Uh-huh. So, so right away you're going to have a feeling of how the crowd feels mm-hmm. about it. Then you can do your own uh, inputting and analysis, and uh, we'll allow you to compare your score with the crowd score. So you, you might feel more bullish or you might feel less bullish about a company. But it does give you a way to bootstrap into a company. So it will be quicker for you to, uh, you know, gain a basic knowledge of where the crowd is with respect to the company. It sounds to me like a lot more objective way of getting a view of what the market thinks about a given stock than, say, some of the chat rooms where you see a lot of rancor, a lot of anger, a lot of hostility and name-calling and falsehoods and a lot of bad stuff going on. Uh, This would seem to be more objective. We've we've designed it that way. I can't bear to look at the chat rooms because... About in my estimation, about twenty percent of what you see there is factual, and the rest is is not. Yeah. And, and in in this sense, these are all independent estimates. So you know, uh, each each user will have their own companies that they'll rank, and then we'll put those rankings into a crowd score for that company. So so there should be a lot of uh, independent analysis here, and. Um, you know the the uh, the factors are 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 very well defined and and uh, lead to some good analysis. I think. 
Do you think there's any danger of people doing what they do on the chat boards? I mean, there have been allegations. I think maybe even there have been some cases that have gone to court where people have taken a short position in the stock and gone out and really bad-mouthed, uh, bad-mouthed things. But I, you know, bad-mouthed the stocks to try to drive them lower, scare people out of them, and they can make money that way or, or say, steal money that way. I think uh, is there a risk that the same thing could happen to you know, it's uh, kind of like we saw last week when with um, some some of these security firms that were that were where their their security is breached. I think it'll be very very difficult to do that because there's no facility here to um, you know to put your own uh, um, you know uh, perceptions in. You you know you, oh, you have right. to use right. our exactly. vocabulary. You've got to now. use the words that are there. Yeah, could somebody come in and say, "This is poor. This is poor. This yes." But you know, if there's a crowd, it will that will average out. And we did we did think about um, you know knocking out very low or very high scores. And then we thought, no, we're just gonna we're gonna leave it because overall there'll be an average score. Yeah, there, there'll sort of be a centroid or a central score, right. and right. Uh, we'll we'll put a um, an interval around this central score. That will allow people to see. So um, I think the only way you could gain this is if, you know, a hundred or so people all decided at the same time that this was a bad stock. And if that's the case, based upon the factors, they'd have to go through the factors. Yeah. Um, and they have no control over where that score comes out. So so I think it would be very, very difficult. Very difficult. Well, let me ask you this. I know that you, you've had uh, a lot of experience investing yourself. Uh, you did it professionally uh, with the fund you were working with. Uh, can you give us an example of uh, an example or two, perhaps, of, of companies that you've actually gone through this process or used these these variables to come up with a successful story? Yeah, and and a disclaimer I'll make at right before we start here, Jay, is um, you know you don't always win in the game. I mean, you you no. hope to, but I think. Uh, I think in the discovery game that the, the rewards for for a great discovery can be so great that you know sort of a one in ten or a two in ten or a three hundred batting averages in baseball are pretty good. So oh, yeah. one that I would mention that um, really got me into this was uh, was Western Silver. Western Silver, I visited them in Mexico in two thousand. Um, the stock was pennies. I, I forget what it was at the time, at thirty cents or something, and. I really liked the management, and Kennecott had drilled some holes at Penasquito and walked away. They drilled 700 holes and walked away. These were um, rotary air blast holes. And uh, I liked the team. I liked Tom Patton and Tom Turner. I visited it four times over the years, and it just got better. One of the One of the key things that got me into doing this was to realize that when things start to get better for a discovery company, they usually get a lot better, and uh-huh. that's true in clinical tests. It's true in mining, and so once you start to hit some holes, you learn a lot more about where to drill the next hole, so things start to get better. So here was a company with um, an increasingly world-class ore body, which Penasquito turned out to be, that Goldcorp now has. Mm-hmm. And we were offered in 2006, February of 2006, we were offered, um, I'm going to say, $21 by Glamis at the time, mm-hmm. and then Glamis was taken out um, for a, a total to us of I think thirty four or thirty five dollars a share. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ones that's been quite spectacular. And I used this system to identify it, and it just kept giving me back the answer that 
this is getting better, the, the scores are getting better, the rankings are getting better, you've you got to own more. And one of the key things I think about uh, discovery investing is you want to own enough. And this is a, a technique that allows you to own more when things start to get better and you begin to realize they're getting better. Mm-hmm. And, wow. you know, so, I mean, if you have a really world-class uh, hit, then you want to own a lot of the stock. And um, we did. We did yeah. with that. And, and um, another one that comes to mind is um, uh, Taliesin Lithium, um, which I think we, we owned at $0.35 cents. We owned the brines um, in in um, Peru at the time, and Taliesin came along and took us out. It was another one of those cycle things where the lithium cycle, if you mm-hmm. will, was really starting to take off because of lithium ion batteries. Yeah, and um, Taliesin bought us out for uh, a really nice premium. It was several dollars a share, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we we sort of. We sort of thought that this was, we were lucky, but we thought this was going to happen. We knew there was more value here. And even today, if you look around at some of the great copper deposits that uh, exist in the world, there are a lot of problems occurring with uh, natural resource nationalism in Mm -hmm. Indonesia and in South America. And so we're starting to look at areas now in the United States Mm -hmm. and... um, and, and those areas are starting to score much higher on the, on the discovery investing scoreboard. And yeah. those companies, therefore, are starting to score higher. So, um, you know, as long as the scores get a little bit better, and actually what happens is they start to get a lot better over time, mm-hmm. then you have a, a degree of comfort that you're in the right stock, hang in there, or increase your position. And naturally, if... Um, things turn the other way, then you, then you want to be moving out of the stock as well. So there is a political risk uh, component to this uh, analysis too, huh? Yes, there is indeed. One and, of the variables. Um, I just wrote up a cancer company this morning that sells for 20 cents, and they're in clinical trials. I, I really got a lot of hassle from my, from my readers uh, saying this is a 20-cent stock. It's, it's actually Sinesco Technologies, which I own. But I've followed it for eight years. They've been in the preclinic. They've cured cancers in the preclinic, that is, on mice. Mm-hmm. Now they're in the clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. They're in humans. Mm-hmm. So there's a catalyst coming. Now, either that catalyst is going to work or it's not going to work. And um, I, I believe that because they've been successful in their preclinical trials on multiple myeloma, I think they've got a chance to be successful in, in, on humans. And so... You know, the system is telling me, keep the stock, move down the road. Uh, if it gets cheaper, buy more. Uh, Michael, so is this, this is one of the stocks in your database now? Yes, it is. It is. And while, we, you know, while we're on the topic, how can people get your letter? Because I know it's a free letter. People can actually sign up for it. So this may be as good a time as any to ask you to tell our listeners how they can sure. sign up for your daily report. Yeah, it's... It's discoveryinvesting.com, www.discoveryinvesting.com. And um, you really, all I need to have is, you know, your name and your city, and um, we'll send you, uh, we, we publish, I used to publish every day, Jay, I publish now fairly selectively, and I publish a lot of work on um, um, 
geopolitical issues as well as some of these companies. But it's a lot more selective. So two or three times a week, we'll come out with um, with something we think is really interesting. Very good. And, and what is the name of the publication again? It's Morning Notes. Yeah. And um, uh, it will cover one or two companies or one or two issues. You know, I'm really concerned now, as you are, with where is Europe going? So we're doing a lot of thinking along those lines. So sometimes I'll write on that sort of thing when I see uh, when I see some changes happening there. Okay, excellent. Well, it's really good. Uh, I think this is really very exciting, Michael. I really want to thank you for that. I would like to switch gears a little bit, though, before we run out of time here to talk a little bit about some of the issues that you were talking about. But maybe before we get to that, even though, uh, backing up a, a step, you had said that there are basically three areas that you cover, natural resources, biotech, and high-tech. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the high-tech area? Give us some examples of some of the – it's not just about information technology. It's, it's other technologies that have to do with, with uh, in the environment, energy, things like that, right? Absolutely. Um, and a lot of this comes out of materials research, so – I'm constantly reading MIT Tech Review and the journal Science. There's so much happening now. I'll just give you one example. There are no graphite mine. There are no graphite mines in the U.S., but there are two or three graphite deposits being developed in Canada. And in 2004, they discovered graphene. Graphene is a one atom thick layer of graphite. It's one of the strongest materials known to man. It conducts heat and electricity better than anything else, including silver. And um, it's one of, as I mentioned, it's one of the strongest materials. It could be made into a number of different things, including battery anodes, and it's resistant to heat. So this is going to be a major area of investment and of innovation. And this will be intellectual property development. It won't necessarily be mining, although, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, um, uh, focus metals in Quebec and northern graphite in Ontario are going to be developing large flake graphite mines. Should also mention that China controls almost all the world's graphite right now. So as material sciences give us new and important uh, materials uh, that we can use in new products, we're going to be looking for those companies that bring them to market, and we think we'll move down the supply chain in terms of uh, in terms of high technology as well, uh, battery technology is is very very important today um, in in a number of different aspects. Solar technology is going to be revolutionized. They can actually Jay now take this graphene, which is this one layer uh, one atom thick layer of graphite, um, won the Nobel Prize by the way in 2010, hmm. and they can they can print it as an ink. So they can print multiple layers of um, uh, light-emitting diodes, multiple layers of solar cells. This photovoltaics, this will revolutionize, uh, I think, some of the alternative energy uh, modalities that now aren't economic. So uh, we're, we got, our, we got our, um, our periscope up and we're watching for these things mm -hmm. in terms of the discovery investing system. Okay. Are there any... Any companies yet, uh, commercial or let's say public companies yet, that are doing work with this, uh, with this new technology, this graphene? Um, there are. Actually, Focus Metals has spun off, and they're here in New Jersey. They're working with Rutgers, as a matter of fact, huh. very closely. They've spun off a company called Graphoid, 
and um, it's 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 private, but it will go public. But um, so we're, we're following it. We're, we know who the principals are, and uh, Rutgers is very very involved. It's like being next door, sort of. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say. So um, you know, there are a number of companies today that are um, uh, working on some of these. Um, new technologies, and we're following them closely. Graphoid is one, and there are two or three other ones, actually, that, um, that really look very, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Michael, if we could shift gears a little bit then. We talked last hour about, uh, you know, political risk. I think we, or maybe we actually touched on it this hour. Um, let's talk about some of the areas. What about Europe? I mean, obviously, Europe is in the news uh, we're going to actually play a clip later in the show, and I have Congressman Ron Paul's chief of staff, Jeff Dice, joining me. Uh, there's a clip by uh, a former Federal Reserve vice president of the Dallas Fed who is saying that, in fact, uh, Mr. Bernanke uh, is engaged in a bailout of Europe already uh, to the tune of trillions of dollars. Uh, wh- where do you think Europe is going, and to what extent are we linked with Europe, to what extent uh, is this whole enormous indebtedness going to drag us down? Do you see the potential for deleveraging causing some big problems uh, in 2012? Deleveraging um, quickly enough. We haven't been. We've been pushing it off. And I think you, have, you and I have talked about this. And so consequently, the problems that we have are getting worse, both here and in Europe. And... and um, uh, I was talking with Gary Schilling the other day, and he was basically saying we've got another year or two or three of deleveraging. And you know, when you're when you're deleveraging and you're reducing your debt load, you're not growing. I mean, it's they're almost they're they're sort of antithetical concepts. Yeah. So uh, I can't see any easy way out for the Europeans. Although um, there are a lot of people on the street, especially this day that are uh, cheering, but I think there are real problems in Europe in terms of their being able to bail out Spain and bail out Greece. I mean, these, these are cultural issues. They're not yeah. just fiscal issues. Yeah. And I, I, for one, and I think others, feel it, it will be very difficult for Europe to come to a single fiscal program that will be run across all countries because... Southern Europe and Northern Europe are just really two different entities. In fact, the French and the Germans are totally different. So, and, and I think that affects us directly, as you point out. It's very, very difficult. Uh, China, uh, Europe is, uh, the European Union is China's biggest trading bloc now. Uh, whatever happens in, in Europe, and most people feel very strongly there will be a pretty deep recession there mm-hmm. this year and perhaps a recession here, this is going to have implications for us and for the Chinese, uh, for the export model economy uh, that the Chinese and others have. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I, I can't even believe, Jay, that last year, early last year, the European Central Bank raised interest rates. I mean, this, this was unbelievable, and their fear of inflation was so... Uh, ingrained mm-hmm. that they raised rates twice, not just once. And now, of course, they're staring deflation in the face. Yeah. And um, as you go through a deleveraging process, uh, asset values fall as you continue to deleverage, and you end up, um, you end up with um, very strong deflationary forces. And in this country, we still have a falling velocity of money. So 
and um, and and a very and a, and a multiplier, a money multiplier that's below one. So it's clear that the the Keynesian uh, models and the monetarist models haven't worked. Have they not have not worked. worked in this country. No, they didn't work in the 1930s. They don't work now. The 1930s, as Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary uh, himself said, and a good personal friend of Roosevelt, Morgenthau, Secretary Morgenthau, said that after eight years we have just as much unemployment as we had when we started this administration and a lot of debt to boot. It sounds an awful lot like what's going on now. And you mentioned velocity, velocity of money. This is what happens when people are not able to borrow and spend, but in fact have, are forced basically to 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 delever and and spend less and pay back their debts and save money. This is definitely happening, and it's a mindset that's very difficult to change, perhaps. And uh, speaking of people that ha- are savers, the Chinese are savers. So what's going to happen here, uh, Dr. Barry? We have uh, Europe being China's largest uh, export uh, market. What's going to happen with Europe going into a deep recession to China then? Are you bullish or bearish on China? And this is, of course, something we're going to try to hear the great debate up in uh, Vancouver between uh, Gordon Chang and Frank Holmes. But what what are your thoughts on that? I guess I'm neither bullish nor bearish. Um, Chinese growth is going to slow. Uh, It's going to slow appreciably from 9% probably to 6 or 7%. I can't really tell you the impact that will have on the uh, ordinary Chinese citizen, but we do have to remember that China is a command economy with a very large bank account, and so they can soften the blow. Um, So might there be revolution there? You know, it's hard to say. I don't think so. But Mm -hmm. um, clearly growth is slowing. Growth is going to slow for China, for Europe, for the U.S., and, um, you know, we're... if you if you're going to delever, then you know you're going to shrink the economy. One one of the things that's most interesting is everybody talks austerity, but austerity is not a Keynesian prescription. So, no. our, you know, if we're really Keynesians, we shouldn't be really talking austerity. We should be printing money, which of course they are, and spending money. But but if you go to Europe, they they now talk about the Greeks going through this austerity program which is again antithetical to to uh, to growth and, and recovery more than anything our central bankers here wanted to inflate out and they have failed and are so, they going to so be we're on a that? different track and it's going to be painful well that's going to be i mean that's the question i know you mentioned dr Schilling. i'm hoping to have him on the show he's agreed to come on our show sometime i know that he is a real deflationist uh, believes that they will not be able to inflate their way out, uh, that is, our central banks will not be able to deflate their way out. Um, gee, I see the engineers telling me I only have one minute to go, so I, I guess we'll have to leave that question for another time. I wanted to just add, get a quick take from you, Dr. Barry, on the equity markets this year. Well, maybe we talked about that. What about treasuries, U.S. treasuries? When is the long bull market in U.S. treasuries going to be over? And is this bull market continuing now? Uh, because of QEs? Is it continuing because of underlying deflation, as Dr. Schilling suggests? Uh, is it occurring uh, because um, there's nowhere else to put your money? Why are we still in a bull market in treasuries, given the shortage of savings that we have? And when is this bull market going to be over? Because this is a very important question. Yeah, the U.S. dollar is still a favorite of the world relative to other fiat currencies, and consequently that's had an impact on gold, which I think is going to be very short, short-term. short 
at some point here, right now there's a huge overhang of debt on the economy, and that's pushing the bond market down. And at some point here, we will inflate. And what I worry about most, Jay, is whether or not, with the amount of money that's been printed, they'll be able to to take that out of the economy quickly enough to not go into a very, very serious inflationary burst here. So, um, you know, at some point, rates go up. And when they do, we're in trouble yeah. here in this country. Well, Indeed, Dr. Barry, there's so much more I had to talk to you about. We're going to have to have you back sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you in Vancouver, talking and learning more about your, uh, about your discovery investing model. It is a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for being with us. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with Jeff Dice, Ron Paul's chief of staff. He's going to have some interesting things to say, I'm sure, about the Federal Reserve and about a lot of other policies that our nation is engaged in. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada, the right stuff in the right place. Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp. MOZ on the TSX is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its Golden Chest project in Idaho, a historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. 
Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again my friend, uh, Jeff Dice, who is Ron Paul's chief of staff. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Jay. How are you? I'm really good. I'm uh, wishing you and your boss a happy new year uh, and your family, of course. Um, you know, one of the criticisms that we hear mostly from Republicans, or I guess mostly from Republicans, although some Democrats too, about your boss and his uh, his ideas is that he would be dangerous because we are, well, because we, uh, because we would pull our military back. Uh, in fact, I know that Ron Paul believes that we are more dangerous because we do have a military presence around the world. But I wanted to play a clip that, uh, from a speech that your boss made on the, uh, on the floor, the House floor recently. Uh, and I refer to it as the what if speech because <clears throat> your boss talks about various what-if propositions uh, having to do with foreign policy. So, Justin, can you play that first clip uh, with Ron Paul on the floor of the House of Representatives? Mr. Jones from North Carolina. Uh, Madam Speaker, I request unanimous consent to take my five minutes at this time. Without objection, the gentleman is granted five minutes. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Madam Speaker, I have a few questions for my uh, colleagues. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? What if we wake up one day and realize that the terrorist threat is a predictable consequence of our meddling in the affairs of others and has nothing to do with us being free and prosperous? What if propping up repressive regimes in the Middle East endangers both the United States and Israel? What if occupying countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and bombing Pakistan is directly related to the hatred directed toward us? What if someday it dawns on us that losing over 5,000 American military personnel in the Middle East since 9-11 is not a fair trade-off for the loss of nearly 3,000 American citizens, no matter how many? Iraqi, Pakistani, and Afghan people are killed or displaced. What if we finally decide that torture, even if called enhanced interrogation technique, 
is self-destructive and produces no useful information and that contracting it out to a third world nation is just as evil? What if it is finally realized that war and military spending is always destructive to the economy? What if all wartime spending is paid for through the deceitful and evil process of inflating and borrowing? What if we finally see that wartime conditions always undermine personal liberty? What if conservatives who preach small government wake up and realize that our interventionist foreign policy provides the greatest incentive to expand the government? What if conservatives understood once again that their only logical position is to reject military intervention and managing an empire throughout the world? What if the American people woke up and understood that the official reasons for going to war are almost always based on lies and promoted by war propaganda in order to serve special interests? What if we as a nation came to realize that the quest for empire eventually destroys all great nations? What if Obama has no intention of leaving Iraq? What if a military draft is being planned for for the wars that will spread if our foreign policy is not changed? What if the American people learn the truth, that our foreign policy has nothing to do with national security, that it never changes from one administration to the next? What if war in preparation for war is a racket serving the special interests? What if President Obama is completely wrong about Afghanistan and turns out worse than Iraq and Vietnam put together? What if Christianity actually teaches peace and not preventive wars of aggression? What if diplomacy is found to be superior to bombs and bribes in protecting America? What happens if my concerns are completely unfounded? Nothing. But what happens if my concerns are justified and ignored? Nothing good. And I yield back the balance of my time. Ms. Woolsey from California. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Okay, that's uh, that's the clip of a speech uh, that your your boss, Ron Paul, recently made on the floor of the House of Representatives. Jeff, was that was that a speech he made just recently? No, that's a couple of years old now, but uh, still, it still uh, rings true today. Okay, so he one of the what ifs was what if President Obama has no intention of leaving Iraq? He has, or has he? left Iraq. I mean, we brought troops back from Iraq. and Well, Mr. we're bringing some back, but we are intensifying other efforts there. We are still building a, a compound. Called, you know, we're calling it an embassy, but it's actually many buildings. It costs over a billion dollars in the green zone, and we, we will uh, maintain a military presence there for, unfortunately, probably decades to come. Okay, so what? one of the things, the what-ifs that really struck me was what if... Um, we discovered that Christianity teaches peace. You know, one of the things that really seems to be a contradiction to me, Jeff, uh, in the Republican Party is the Christian right uh, that claims to be for the right to life. And yet they seem to be very quick to endorse wars in which we kill tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people in other nations. Um, what if Christianity is about peace instead of war? I mean, what... How can you explain the disconnect between that? Well, first and foremost, you have to understand some of the Christian traditions. I mean, there are obviously very various uh, 
you know, different types of Christian thought, but one important tradition is is the just war doctrine that comes down from St. Thomas Aquinas that basically posits that a, you know, self-defense is the is a moral action, but, uh, you know, wars of convenience or wars of choice are not. And uh, by all accounts, the, our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were wars of choice, not wars of self-defense. Yeah. So, so that seems to be one that uh, one real real big difference between uh, Christianity. I come from a actually from um, uh, from a Mennonite background in which we believe that all wars were unjust. But here we have it seems to me a lot of the Christian right in America that believes that you know any war that America engages in, if it's a, if it's a, if it's against Muslims or some group that we don't like, it's it's you know for the case uh, for the cause of. Uh, of this great nation, it's it's good. It's uh, as if we were uh, God-inspired, and we should do this stuff all the time. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the, the other thing, of course, is that we have this this empowerment to engage in wars is uh, is made possible by the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve, of course, is is creating money out of thin air to do all manner of things. Uh, Justin, could you play that the next clip? I don't know. Do we have enough time to play the next clip? Uh, play it if you if if we've got enough time. Is the Federal Reserve covertly bailing out Europe? That's what a former Fed official is saying today in the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal. The author is Gerald O'Driscoll, a former Dallas Federal Reserve vice president and now a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He joins us this morning on a CNBC First. Jerry, good to see you. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, you're talking specifically about these uh, these swap arrangements that were uh, unveiled a couple of weeks ago. Your point is they're doing it as in the current form as opposed to directly with banks because uh, they're already embarrassed by some of their exposure to those banks, right? Yes. Uh, if you remember going back to 2008-9, they had this program of special lending and they reported the aggregates, but they didn't re want to report the identity of the borrowers and news organizations filed FOIAs and the, they lost in the Supreme Court. So they don't want to have to reveal to whom they're lending. So they lend to the European Central Bank, which then lends to banks and doesn't tell the Fed to whom they're lending. It's a bailout. December 14th, uh, Bernanke's in front of some Republican senators. He says the Fed, yes. in his words, does not have the intention or the authority to bail out Europe. You, you say this, you see this as a direct assault on, the, on that statement? Oh, well, I mean, to ordinary people, it's a bailout. There may be some legalism that Bernanke had in the back of his mind that enabled, he thought enabled him to say that, but it's a bailout. That's all I can say. I wasn't there. I don't know the exact words he spoke to the senators. Uh, it does sound, though, I mean, when you juxtapose the two sentences, the statement that the, there's no authority for a bailout, but then the next week, Mr. Bernanke promised no bailout. The size of the swap wants the ECB ballooned by about $52 billion. That almost, it sounds like you're implying or that you're saying that Mr. Bernanke was doing this to provide a bailout for Europe, even though senators said, no, you don't have the authority. I don't know what was in his mind. I can only say that it was reported he told the senators there'd be no bailout, and there is a bailout. It's a bailout. The fact that a swap is not technically a loan, not legally a loan, doesn't mean it is not de facto a loan, economically a loan. The Fed is lending to the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the European Central Bank is lending to commercial banks in Europe. That's a bailout. Even if it's not a contradiction of Bernanke's reported uh, statement, the president himself has said this is Europe's problem. It is Europe's problem to solve. Geithner said similar things. Uh, it goes against a host of comments from the administration, both inside and outside of the Fed. 
It certainly does. It is a bailout, and we've been promised no bailout. And that's why I say I think the chairman should go before the relevant congressional committees and explain either why this isn't a bailout or why he must do it, despite promises not to, one or the other. Are there, are, are there, current, you, are there current Fed officials who feel the way you do? I don't know. I don't know. I know there are Fed officials who in the past have objected to currency intervention, um, both retired and current. And uh, this isn't technically a currency intervention, but is the use of foreign exchange to make loans, to hide them. You know, Greece hid its loans in part by deals with Goldman Sachs using currency swaps. It's well known they can hide transactions, and that's what the Fed is doing. And when you're doing something you're trying to hide, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Gerald, are you cons- why should viewers at home be concerned? Are you concerned that these loans won't be paid back? Because we are, in all fairness, we're, the, the Fed is going to get paid back at an interest rate of about 50 basis points. Yeah, well, it used to be a 100 basis point. The, the, the value of the collateral that the European banks are bringing to the ECB is deteriorating. That's been widely reported. And now they're borrowing at cheaper rates. It is not a risk-free adventure for the Fed. The ECB could find itself in a position where it could not pay the swaps back in dollars in a timely fashion. It's not a zero risk. And if the Fed loses money, the taxpayer loses money because all Fed profits minus their operating costs are paid to the U.S. Treasury. But if you were to put a percentage on that risk, the probability of risk, what would that be? You said it's not zero risk. So in your view, what is that risk of not being paid back? Well, since it's never been done before in this massive scale, I, 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 there's no probability I can assign to it. It's not zero. It's probably not high, but it's not zero. And since this is a risk to the taxpayer, I think the Fed should be explaining it in, you know, honestly, straightforwardly. This is why we're, what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And by the way, this is why we don't think it's a bailout. Well, they've said they're going to look at their communication strategy uh, after the new year. We'll see what happens in January. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, they need a better communication strategy, that's for sure. I can sense your skepticism in that in that laugh. No, Jerry, thanks for the time. <laughs> yes. Thank uh, you. Jerry O'Driscoll. All right, so there you have it, um, a Fed official accusing the Fed, a former Fed official accusing the Fed of really essentially misleading Congress, misleading the Senate again. Jeff, uh, any reactions? Well, first, it's a little hilarious. I love the credulous, the overly credulous uh, host. Now, obviously, uh, Mr. O'Driscoll, the guest, was fantastic. Um, but, the, you know, the, the host's default is to say, well, come on, isn't what the Fed doing on the up and up? You know, it just, yeah. it's just so symptomatic of our, of our loathsome press. But uh, what's, what's interesting here, Jay, is that it doesn't matter if it was zero risk, which it's not. Yeah. What matters is the secrecy. And the fact that... that, that uh, Bernanke's even sweating it in front of a bunch of senators. A lot of that credit's got to go to Ron Paul because he's the Absolutely. one who, is, who has brought so much public scrutiny to this over the last few years. I mean, tr- trust me, the, the Fed does not consider itself under the uh, regulatory thumb of the House or the Senate at all. It considers yeah. itself its own independent actor. Right. And to the extent it even shows up and talks to senators, uh, it consider, I, I guarantee you Bernanke considers that an irritation in his life. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, these the senators have, at the end of the day, uh, far, far, far less power than Mr. Bernanke. Well, uh, because they haven't exercised the power that they have, no doubt. Right. Uh, Jeff, we are, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could chat a lot longer, but I thank you very much, and I'm sure that Ron will be on to this topic, as he is all of the Fed topics. 
topics of concern to average citizens. Thank you so much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada, the right stuff in the right place. Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp. MOZ on the TSX is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its Golden Chest project in Idaho, a historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at W www.rypatchgold.com Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host Jay Taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I've got just a couple of minutes here uh, to wrap up today's show. Uh, a couple of major themes that I really, uh, really believe are, are you need to pay attention to as we go into this new year. One is that we have a huge amount of deleveraging that needs to take place in the global economy. Dr. Barry talked about it a little bit. He mentioned Dr. Gary Schilling, who I hope to have on the show sometime in the near future. But other people we've had here, like... Uh, uh, like Robert Prechter, uh, Ian Gordon, and several others, uh, Bob Hoy, talked about this enormous indebtedness. And we're looking at 325 to 350% of total debt in the U.S. to GDP. That compares with the previous high in 1933 of 225%, and that was a percentage, a very high percentage, because uh, GDP fell off the table. We've not seen GDP fall, anything like that yet. So there's a huge amount of debt that has to be wrung out of the system. And this is going to put downward pressure, possibly on prices, but certainly downward pressure on jobs and on economic growth. Um, But uh, as we look at this, Bob Hoy has provided insights into this over the last 300 years. This is the sixth major credit deleveraging episode in 300 years, and each and every time, the real price of gold has risen dramatically. And sure enough, after Lehman Brothers took place in 2008, that was the first shoe to drop in this major deleveraging process, we're seeing the real price of gold rise very dramatically from 17% of the Rogers Raw Material uh, Fund in 2008 uh, to now around 46 or 45%. So that has meant that the real price of gold relative to the cost of getting it out of the ground has gone up, and we're seeing major mining companies with big, big profits. I believe this is the best of times for junior mining or for the for the new companies, the companies that are producing gold, the new ones that are going into production. One of my favorites, and I've called it my top pick of the year uh, in the gold sector, is Sandstorm Gold. We had the CEO on the show last week to talk about it, Nolan uh, Watson. Uh, this is one I think you should keep your mind, your your eyes on. Now, I really am concerned about the juniors that have to go out and raise capital. If we have a very weak equity market this year, as I believe we could very well have, given the deleveraging process that's in pro- that, uh, that I think the global economy is inevitably going to face, then we could see some very a substantial weakness in the equity markets. And so there, there is danger out there right now. So I think you stick with the good gold mining companies that have the cash flow to pick up cheap mining projects, uh, pick up mining projects very inexpensively. Those will be the winners this year. I should mention for next week, we're going to have a very interesting guest, Dr. John Coleman. He's written a book called The Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. It talks about the propaganda machine that was put in place by the British Crown and then financed later by the Rothschilds in order to brainwash British people and American people into getting us into World War I and then World War II. This is really in line with the work of uh, Estulin, Salbucci, Griffin, people we've had on the show before. Very, very important book, I think, in understanding why it is, the politics of our day, why the Republicans and Democrats have both have a hard time accepting the Constitution, as Ron Paul keeps talking about. The British have taken back our country. People need to wake up before it's too late. Well, that's about all the time we have this week. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my executive producer, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show viable. And also thank each of you for listening to this show until next week. Goodbye and God's blessings to you.
thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.